Wow, good evening, St. Dee's. And um, before I start, just in response to those very, very lovely words from Tim, the pleasure has been all mine. Um, it has been such a precious couple of years to spend with you all. I am so grateful for the community here, for having the chance to be part of it, the privilege of being part of this church family, and um, know that as I go to Kingston, I will be cheering you on with all the adventures that lie ahead of you. Um, but this evening, we continue our series in the book of James, uh, this wonderful letter written to the early Christians who have been scattered at this point beyond Israel. And it's really, it's a letter that is a manual for living. It's a reassertion of the teachings of Jesus, a reminder of the ways that he calls us to live. And Tim spoke to us last week of the importance of the word that James outlines. He um, outlines, he, he talks about getting this book, the Bible, into us, of letting the word of God read us and shape us and mold us. And so we land this evening in chapter two of this letter when James begins to get really practical, when he begins to paint a picture for us of what true religion looks like, of what following Jesus should look like, of what doing the word looks like, not just in an abstract sense, but in our day-to-day -day individual local experience. So let's read together. Um, I'm going to read for you from uh, chapter two of James and we're going to start the beginning of the chapter and go down to verse 13. So James writes, My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonoured the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honourable name by which you were called? If you really fulfil the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This week, as I was preparing for today, 
um, I was having a chat with my goddaughter. Um, she's in my bubble and bubbled with her family of six. And um, we were having a chat. She's eight. She's a vicar's kid. Um, so she understands the concept of sermons and sort of how long they normally last. And she was asking me what I was going to speak on today. And so I thought, right, let's pitch this for an eight-year-old. So I explained that James is teaching us that Jesus loves people, that he loves all people, and that he wants us to love people the way he loves them. And that means not treating someone differently because of what they look like or because of how much money they have, that we are to love people the way that Jesus loves them. And she thought about it for a minute before looking at me and saying, Ellie, I'm not sure it's going to take half an hour for you to just say that. Out of the mouths of babes. She's right, of course. So often we take the very simple truths of scripture, of the gospel, and we massively overcomplicate them. The practical outworking of these verses tonight is actually quite simple. Love people without partiality. Love those who are poor, those who have little or no power, those who might have nothing to offer you. Honour the poor. James is really clear. It's one of the things that I love about the way he writes. But the reality is, as you and I know, is that it is more complicated than that. Because we know that the human heart is a complicated thing. And we look around our churches and our lives, and I know that there are many ways that I am not living up to this, that I struggle with the things that James talks about here because the human heart is a complicated thing. And this passage tonight is really about the positioning of our hearts. We can't be those who do the word until we are those who understand the word, the word made flesh, who see him and encounter his glory. James starts our passage tonight. He says, My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That word glory, it implies the beauty, the majesty, the uncompromising goodness of God. When Moses says to God, when they're on Mount Sinai and Moses says to God, show me your glory, God's response to this is he says, this thing you have spoken, I will do. I will make all my goodness pass before you. So when James makes a point of starting this section of his teaching by referring to the faith that we have in a God who is the God of glory, He's not just using hyperbole. He's not just using flowery language or using a title that doesn't mean anything. He's making a clear distinction that Jesus is the benchmark of glory, of goodness, that his goodness alone is worthy of glory. He is the king of glory. And yet he's warning us in these verses that we are often in danger of being attracted to a different kind of glory, of being, as he states at the end of chapter one in verse 27, polluted by the false glory that the world offers. And in James's illustration that he gives us, a rich man enters the place where Christians have gathered for worship. 
And this man is, he's clearly identifiable as rich by what he's wearing, by how he's presented. His wealth is the attractive quality. We are attracted to that which the world says is rich and honourable. That which has achieved something, has amassed wealth or success, that which speaks of influence and power. It's why we have a celebrity culture. The stats alone around Instagram influencers are very telling. 50% of consumers now say that they depend on influencers for recommendations of products. We will literally buy what attractive and influential people tell us to buy. Four in ten millennials now say that their favourite influencer understands them better than their friends. Wealth, success, influence, status is where the world tells us freedom is found. And by the world standards, it's so often what makes somebody acceptable. And it is certainly the route by which one can be given a seat at the table of power. An outward dignity Someone who does the right things, says the right things, fits in and yet stands out. We are looking, our hearts seek a glory that is shiny and slick, that we can see our aspiration in. And we look to those who are accepted by the world because most of us just want to be accepted too. That is the cry of our hearts. And so we lean towards partiality simply because that's the deep longing of our hearts that we want to be accepted And we're wired to take the easiest route to it. And this is nothing new. When Jesus began his public ministry 2,000 years ago, even his disciples struggled with the PR blunders that Jesus made. He hung out with promiscuous women. He went for dinner with all the local troublemakers. He was more interested in doing good than looking good. Would it have been easier if he'd towed the line a little bit more or hung out with the right kind of people or maybe didn't offend quite so many religious leaders? As Tim mentioned, um, about 11 years ago, I founded and then led for many years and now sit as a trustee um, on the board of a Christian ministry that cares for and builds community around isolated and vulnerable families and particularly um, young mums who are parenting alone. And um, for many years, I worked uh, with many different women. It was a real privilege. Um, And often many of these women experienced what the poor man in our story experiences. They know what it's like to have been told to sit at the back, who've been pushed to the outside because of your behavior, because of the impacts of poverty, because you don't look or sound or behave like everybody else. And the impact of that for many of these women and families is that it's incredibly hard for them to trust and build relationship. And there was one lady in particular that I worked with um, who at times was very, very difficult for those reasons to build relationship with. It wasn't always easy. It wasn't always comfortable. And when we were out in public, sometimes that that was quite uncomfortable because she wouldn't always say or do the appropriate thing. And as someone who doesn't really like being the centre of attention, that pushed my buttons a few times. It was quite hard. But I can tell you the place, the moment, 
the exact roundabout on the A316 in Richmond where I was driving when she sat beside me in my car one day and she was teasing me about something that I had done wrong, something that I'd forgotten to do, which unfortunately was not out of the ordinary. And um, she was teasing me about it and all of a sudden she went very quiet and she suddenly said to me, but it's okay, Ellie, I forgive you because you're my friend and that's what friends do. And I haven't had many holy moments on the A316, but that was one of them. When I experienced in those words, in that moment, something of the glory of God, of the heart of Jesus, for those who are poor in the eyes of the world. I was undeserving of it. And only by grace did Jesus let me see what it means when we encounter, when we live by, as scripture says, the royal law, when we choose to love others as he loves them. The royal law, James refers to it in the second half of our passage this evening, law. This is the bit in James's letters where we all get a bit fidgety because we don't like law. We don't love rules. And we get in a little bit of a tangle about wanting to live under grace and not under law. Because law sounds like a burden. And is loving tricky people just another thing in the long list of things that I've now got to do to make Jesus like me? Is that what it means? No. What James wants us to grasp is that the law of God is goodness to us because it points us to the heart of God. It tells us who he is. It tells us what he's like. And it tells us what he's made us to be like. The problem is, is that we like the laws that keep us safe. So the ones about not murdering, not stealing, we're all good with those. But the loving your neighbour as yourself, that one's quite hard. That one's quite tricky. But the problem is, is that you can't cherry pick the laws of God because they are a reflection of God's character And God's character is whole. You can't have the bits that you like and leave the bits that you don't. And so it's true that God, by nature, is loving and he loves all people. He's calling all people to himself. And so the rich man in James's story who enters the church building, he is as loved by God as the poor man. God is not anti-money. He's not against wealth. But scripture is clear that God has a special concern for the poor, for the outsider, for the oppressed. We find it all the way through scripture in the Old and New Testament that God makes special comments, special dispensations for those who are on the outside of society. He talks about the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the refugee. At the very heart of God is a longing to care for, love and give justice to those who are poor and suffering. This is who he is. And when James talks about keeping the whole law, he's not doing away with grace. He's not saying you've got to get all of this right all of the time. What he's saying is if you want to take hold of Jesus, if you want to get to know him, then you have to get to know this. 
because Jesus is passionate about those who find themselves on the outside of what society says is acceptable. Jesus is passionate about the messy person. He is passionate about the socially unacceptable. He's passionate about the screw-up and those who are overlooked and unseen. He is passionate about the less and the struggling. And I am so glad that that is the heart of God because it means that in all my mess, in the very horror of my own sin and selfishness, my hypocrisy and my pain, it means he's also passionate about me and he's passionate about you. And, you know, if tonight as I talk about this and we look at this story, if you identify with the poor man in the story, if you feel like you're overlooked, that you're shoved to the back, that you're not seen, that you come to God in your mess and your filth and all the places that you feel unworthy, know this. Jesus is passionate about you. You are chosen by him to inherit his kingdom. That is his plan for you. He is passionate about you. His longing for us is that we might become those who so take hold of the whole of Jesus, who know the whole of his character, who choose the whole of his way, that to love those that the world says are the very least and the very last, that they might become the first to whom we are naturally drawn, because in them we cannot help but see the imprint of the glory of God. The social justice activist Brian Stevenson, in his book Just Mercy, he wrote these words. He said, you can't understand the important things from a distance. You have to get close. We have to get close to see. We have to get close to understand. I think one of the most devastating impacts of COVID over the last year is that somehow it's legitimized relationship from a distance. And it has isolated in our communities those who were already isolated or excluded. Last April, The Guardian reported on the digital divide in the UK, where an estimated 1.9 million people were left without internet access, and millions more who are reliant on pay-as-you-go services are now struggling to access health or social welfare services that are vital to survival. There is more than one way that the practicalities of poverty prevent people from being part of community. Sometimes it is because of our prejudice and bias, like the two men in James's story, that we tend to move towards those who are more easy or preferable for us to spend time with. But sometimes it is far more subtle. That because of the very constructs of our society mean that if you are privileged enough to have access to good housing, private wealth, employment and education, you are far more likely to get a seat at the table than those who do not. And that happens even in our churches. And James is very clear with us about this. He says, when that happens, you dishonour the poor. when that happens, you dishonor the poor and honor is found in being seen, in being known, 
in being listened to at the table. We see time and time again in the Gospels that Jesus moves towards those on the edges of society. And what I love is that he doesn't so much try and bring them in and make them like everybody else. He just brings the kingdom to them. He is the one who goes out of his way to make a way for them. He goes to Zacchaeus's house. He moves into the neighborhood. He says, I'll meet you where you are. I'll love you in your community, where you feel safe, where you feel comfortable. I'll be your guest. You don't have to conform to this world. Instead, he offers an invitation to a new kingdom, one where all are welcomed and have their own unique value and place. I love that um, at St. Dee's, we are partnered with a charity called Glassdoor, and lots of you uh, here this evening will, will know about Glassdoor. Um, but if you're new, then uh, Glassdoor is a charity that uh, works through churches across London to serve um, those who are homeless in our community. Um, and St. Dee's is, is one of those churches and is active. It's a really wonderful thing. But one of the things that I really love about Glassdoor is that I love the annual fundraiser that they do. Um, And I have to confess, I've never done this, but several of our church members have taken part, which is where what happens is people sleep out for a night on the street to raise awareness and money um, for the homeless people that we serve. And what I love about it, and I'm going to make up a word here, (laughs) is that it just fosters this sense of withness That you go to be with people, that it's that small moment that says... Let me know your experience. Let me know you. Let me be with you. Let me experience one night of your life. And what that says is your life has value. Your life matters. I want to know what it's like. It is the embodiment of Emmanuel, God with us. And giving up power to be with others is scary. Stepping into relationship with people who are different to us can be messy and unpredictable. It's not safe, it's not clean, it's not tidy. Surrendering ourselves to others is a sacrifice, it's a risk. But the wonderful and joyous thing about surrendering to Jesus is that when we do, we place ourselves in the way of his grace in the path of his mercy, mercy that triumphs over judgment. And we find there that in the love of God, we already have all things. For those who love Jesus, James says, we will inherit the kingdom, all the goodness, all the glory of God becomes ours in him. The mercy of God has triumphed over the judgment of the law. And that means that you and I, we are completely free to love abundantly, radically, sacrificially, because all things are ours in Christ. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, though he, Jesus, was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. My little goddaughter, who I told you about at the beginning, um, she has a little brother. Like I said, they're a family of six. And I've I've been bubbled with them for like the last six months. And um, her little brother is three. And when you're three 
and you're not allowed to see other people outside of your family, you get very excited about somebody else being able to come and play. I'm a massive hit with him at the moment, I'll be honest. Um, it's very affirming. And, um, and so when I go round, I frequently get asked, when am I next coming for tea? When am I next coming to play? If I've gone over for lunch, I get asked, can I stay an extra hour? Can I stay for another mealtime? And you know what is brilliant about kids? They never bother to check if there's enough. They don't worry for a second that if I'm at the table, there won't be room for them. It doesn't even cross their mind. They don't worry that if I'm there, then there won't be enough food for them. They just love having someone extra to play with. You know why? Because they know, as certainly as they can, that their mum and dad will provide for them. They know without a shadow of a doubt that there will be a seat at the table for them, that there will be food on the plate for them, because they know they're loved. They know they're loved. They know who they are. They don't even question it. They know there will be enough. Friends, your heavenly father loves you with a gracious and an abundant love. He will not withhold from you. He will never give you less than the very best that he has for you. You can't outgive him. He's not going to run out. He always has enough for you. He has already graciously given you all things. And that means that we get to live without fear or prejudice, the adventure of making room at the table for those who Jesus passionately loves. We get to be those who welcome in to the family, the ones that the rest of the world has forgotten or overlooked. I know that we are living through really difficult days. And for most of us, maybe most days just feel like just trying to get through the day. And hear me when I say these verses from James are not meant to be a burden or a rod to the back. What they want to impress upon us is that in the midst of a life that we cannot control, that is fleeting, that comes with all of its breakable promises of wealth and power and acceptance that cannot save us or sustain us, there is a promise of a glory and a hope that we are offered that will never fade, never perish or die. But here's the really important bit that we need to know. As Pete Gregg once wrote, he said, Jesus chose to plant his glory in the dirt. You won't find it in riches. You won't find it in the acceptance of people. But you will always find it in the freedom of a given life, stretched out hands, in lengthening the table, in leaning in close to be near those in the dirt, to sit with them, to be with them. It's where we find Jesus, because that's who he is. Amen.